The human body and human spirit are very resilient. We witness this in, for instance, the paralyzed man who wills himself to walk again. We witness this in the woman who fights a life-threatening disease and wins, or in the child who overcomes tremendous odds to become a great musician or athlete or something like that. But against time, human life is very insignificant and weak. Against time, we stand no chance at all. Life is short, and it is fragile. And not one day passes on this earth with a guarantee of another. A stroll through a graveyard may serve well to remind us of our frailty. The gravestones bear consistent witness that on one day we are born, and on another we die. Over there lies a man who lived 96 years of age, but he's gone. And time has erased all memory of his life among the living. And he died the very same year as the lady, just two headstones down, 28 years old. And her gravestone bears the words, Mother. And right next to her, the small gravestone of an infant girl who shares both her name and her day of death. No matter how long we live, our lives on this planet are few and they pass quickly. What is your life? James says in chapter 4, you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Job writes, man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. He springs up like a flower and withers away like a fleeting shadow. He does not endure. Chapter 14. Fittingly, our fleeting days are represented on most gravestones by the simple dash between the two dates. But while our lives are but a passing mist that vaporizes so quickly, this is not to say that our lives are insignificant. Our lives do not stand up at all against time, but they matter very much in time. In other words, they pass quickly and are soon forgotten on earth. But what we do, how we live, and what we accomplish in the few days that are given to us on earth stands forever. You cannot control the length of your days and you cannot control the circumstances of those days. And by God's grace, the memory of our specific sins can be covered over by Christ's blood. But your days on earth form a legacy that will matter for eternity. They form a legacy that will matter for eternity. On the one hand, our lives are but a passing mist that does not stand up well against time. On the other hand, our lives form a permanent legacy that time can never erase. We know how long, we know not how long we will live. We know not the trials and the blessings that God's providence will bring into our lives on this journey. But there is a legacy each one of us leaves behind, and there is a destiny based on that legacy. We are reminded of this reality as we come to this 35th chapter of Genesis today where we see the permanent record of life and death and legacy as the text moves past Isaac and Jacob and Esau's stories to the account of Joseph in chapter 37. Remember in chapter 35 verses 1 through 15, you may like to skim the text there, Jacob leaves Shechem. 
He calls his family to singular worship of Jehovah. There's been the worship of God. He has uh, gone on record to say that God is his God, but his family is worshiping other idols alongside of God. Jacob returns to Bethel. He fulfills his vow to the Lord there. And here at Bethel, Jacob defines his legacy as a man of faith in God. In these first 15 verses of chapter 35, Jacob's legacy as a man of faith is established. These verses mark the high point in his journey. They are, in a sense, to Jacob what Mount Moriah is to Abraham. A conclusion to his faith, or at least a final statement of it. A dramatic statement. Having fulfilled then his vow to God at Bethel, Jacob decides to move southward, not knowing what what new trial will await him. There is fire on the journey ahead for Jacob. A trial by fire meets him as we come to the 16th verse of Genesis chapter 35 where we read Genesis 35, 16, Then they moved on from Bethel. While they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, Don't be afraid. For you have another son, as she breathed her last, for she was dying. She named her son Benoni, but his father named him Benjamin. We are informed only here that Rachel is pregnant again. God has answered her request for another son, which she formally registered by naming Joseph, the way she did, his name means, may he add, may God add another son to me, chapter 30 and verse 24. Little did Rachel know the birth of her second son would bring a close to her assignment on earth. The Hebrew text indicates that her labor pains became fierce or hard, is the Hebrew word. Something terrible had gone wrong with her labor and she found herself in the throes of death. As verse 17 says, in great difficulty in childbirth. Here again, the Hebrew idea in severe labor. The midwife tries to cheer her and says, your prayers have been answered. You've had another son. This is what you've always desired. But this son, Rachel would never have opportunity to hold. Verse 18 says she breathes her last, or literally her soul is leaving. As she dies, as her soul departs, she names him Benoni, something like son of my affliction or son of my sorrow. Jacob, for reasons we do not know, wants to give him a different name. It certainly evidences some leadership in his home that's not been there before. Remember, all of the other children are named by their mother. He has no part in any of that. It doesn't appear in the days back in Haran, but here he seeks to name this son, the son of my right hand. That would be the most common interpretation, and it's not an easy name to understand in the Hebrew, but probably something like son of good fortune. So she names him son of my sorrow, son of my trouble, and Jacob says, no, this is son of good fortune. He tries to put a positive spin on Rachel's death and on the blessing of God, accepting from God, it would appear, the death of his favorite wife. It had to be a difficult time for Jacob. And it had to be, I think, in some ways, probably difficult to name this son, give this son this name. Perhaps he's seeking to encourage his wife, we don't know. Perhaps he's expressing his faith in God's providential love. Whatever the case, he names this son, son of good fortune, the son of my right hand. 
Jacob now has 12 sons who will lead the 12 tribes of Israel. The sons are all born and the tribes are set. The course is set. Remember in chapter 30 and verse 1, ironically, Rachel said she would die if she could have a, not have a child, and here she dies having one. In chapter 31 and verse 32, Jacob told Laban that whoever stole Laban's household, God should die. Rachel doesn't die. She escapes detection at that point, but she dies what we call, in some ways euphemistically, a premature death, an early death. Rachel is gone. And this generation begins to pass away. So verse 19 says she died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. Ephrath, later called Bethlehem. And here it is that Jacob buries this wife who meant so much to him. You remember their love? Seven years of hard labor for Laban and years that passed so quickly for Jacob because of his genuine love for this woman. His favorite wife, his true love, and now she is gone. And evidencing his love and sorrow, he erects a stone pillar to bear enduring witness to his, life's, to his wife's legacy. Let me just uh, help you here. You may have a Bible in your map, or a map in your Bible, either one, I guess. is <laughs> generally goes the other way around. But uh, just to remind us here of the journey of Jacob, get a picture of it. He's come from Haran, down in this direction. This is where, at Peniel, he wrestled with the angel, or with the man of God, with God himself as he prepared to meet Esau, who was heading up from the south, Eden, from Edom. And then across, uh, to, or over to Sukkoth, Jacob stays for some period of time, then crosses the Jordan and ends up at Shechem, where he stops and establishes an altar there. God calls him to go back to Bethel, which I don't have here, I just realized on this map, but in this, uh, down here further south of Shechem. And now he journeys further down to Ephrath, and in this region, Rachel dies and is buried. He will continue to make his way southward as he uh, journeys on from this place. And this whole text is really uh, centered around these places and what takes place at each one. But here Rachel dies, and Jacob is forced to bury her in grief. We read on at verse 21, and here we see another episode that is inserted in the text. And this is the sin of Jacob's first son, Reuben. Chapter 35 and verse 21, Israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Migdal Eder. While Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, and Israel heard of it. Is any evidence that the Bible is a genuine text? There are phrases like this or episodes like this that certainly indicate the authenticity of the text. What reason would such a note have? But it has a very important phrase, or a very important place, and we are reminded again of Jacob's troubled family. But there's more going on here than probably meets the eye. Jacob has come here in location where we believe to be most likely the Jerusalem area, and a scandal once again rocks his family at this place. 
Reuben, the oldest of Jacob's sons and the firstborn of Leah, lies with Bilhah. Remember, she's Rachel's maid servant and the mother of Jacob's sons, Dan and Naphtali. What is his motivation here? From a Western perspective, in the freedom of our society and culture, we would see something like this and consider probably just two options. First of all, that it was rape, or second, that it was some sordid affair within the family. I don't believe that either really explains the situation. If we put ourselves in the context of that day, a different picture arises. First of all, if it was a rape, the Bible is always very clear to give us that information when that is the case, and there's nothing said here about a rape. Secondly, I believe we are right to assume that, Re- that Reuben is already married. Now, we don't know that for sure, but it's very possible that he is already married. Remember the Shechemites that were destroyed, the men, the warriors were destroy- destroyed, but the women and children were taken. And uh, very possible that uh, the men of Israel, the, the sons of Israel, had wives from the Shechemites already. We don't know that for sure, but one thing we also do know is that Bilhah is considerably older than Reuben. To make this some type of sordid affair seems very strange. She has to be 14 to 15 years older and probably quite a bit older than that. Remember, she was his uh, mother's maid servant uh, at the time of his mother's marriage and so she's considerably older than he is in the context of this day i think what is really going on here this is an illicit relationship undoubtedly it is sinful and it is wrong but i think it is first of all consensual and i think it is secondly politically motivated reuben and perhaps even bilhah is challenging jacob's leadership of the clan remember what absalom did when he challenged david's kingship remember what he did He went and what did he do? In the presence of Israel, in the broad daylight, he pitched his tent probably on some courtyard of the the complex, of the the, uh, palace complex, and he sleeps with some of David's concubines. Remember that? Why does he do that? Obviously in that setting, and it's not in a Western setting, an idea of just uh, illicit sex or pleasure, but that was a decision on Absalom's part to establish himself as the one who was usurping his father's place. Do you remember Abishag the Shunammite? Remember that woman from the pages of Scripture? She was the young virgin, beautiful woman, who was chosen out of Israel to keep the aging King David warm. Remember that history? After David's death, Solomon's brother, Adonijah, requests to marry this beautiful virgin, Abishag. And again, from our perspective, from a Western perspective, we're saying beautiful virgin woman chosen out of Israel as one of the most beautiful women there to come and be with the king. Now she's free. I mean, it makes perfect sense to ask for her hand in marriage. What does Solomon do when Adonijah asks for Abishag's hand in marriage? He kills him. Now, is that because Solomon is just upset and he wanted Abishag or something like that? Not at all. The point is that he understood that Adonijah was making a play for the throne by sleeping with this woman who was part of the royal harem. And I think it's that kind of context in which we need to read this act. It is an illicit act. It is a sinful act. But I believe that it is a move by Reuben to sleep with this woman so that he would have claim of leadership of the clan. 
Nothing comes of it. Jacob does not address the situation until his deathbed. What matters to us is that this sinful and foolish act disqualifies Reuben from leadership of the covenant people in the future. There will be a leader among these 12 sons. It will not be Reuben. We have already established in the text it will not be Levi, it will not be Simeon because of their sin against the Shechemites, and now it will not be Reuben, though he attempts to force Jacob's hand. Now, Reuben would have seen to be, to have the inside track here, to be the next one to lead the clan, but it's this foolishness and this sin that will cut him out of that, and we'll get to that much later in the book of Genesis. We move then to the sons of Jacob. Obviously, Benjamin was, has been born, and so the sons, I have, all of the sons have been born, and that allows now for the first time this formal listing at verse 23 of Jacob's sons. His 12 sons, the sons of Leah, Reuben the firstborn of Jacob, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Rachel's maidservant, Bilhah, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Leah's maidservant, Zilpah, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. Now, obviously, Benjamin was not born in Padan Aram, but the 11, are, the 11 were, and Jacob is lumped in with them. It's also possible to translate the preposition in Padan Aram as from in other words, there were wives taken from Padanaram, and all of these sons were born from them. Uh, this is a very important note here in the text. And when we work with genealogies, they come across to us as very unimportant, unimaginative, unexciting, something to pass up. But there's something going on here, in, and there is in every genealogy recorded in Scripture. There's something very important with this note here, that these individuals were born where? Outside the land. They were taken from outside of Canaan. It draws us back again to chapter 24 and Abraham's insistence that Isaac's wife will be taken from outside of the land. Keep that in mind as we work our way to a discussion of Esau here in just a few moments. But we move first of all to another segment, another addition to this final chapter in the life of Isaac at verse 27. Jacob came home to his father Isaac in Mamre near Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. So if you picture the map again toward the south end of the Dead Sea, Jacob has continued to journey southward, and as he journeys southward, he comes full circle and meets up again with Isaac. The father who cared not for him, the son who cared not much for his father, but he comes home at last. Isaac, verse 28, lived 180 years. Then he breathed his last and died and was gathered to, the, to his people, old and full of years, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. 180 years. This would indicate to us this is not a, uh, all set together in perfect chronological order, but we would understand by this then that uh, Joseph has already long been in Egypt uh, at, at the time of his death, but 180 years of age, he lives a long life, a typical life in that day, in that time, but a long life. Esau joins Jacob, we notice here in Canaan, to bury his father. The brothers seem to have come to a place of full reconciliation. Many would like to make much of this joining together at their father's graveside and burying him together. 
We don't know if how much reconciliation took place here. It seems that most of that took place on the east side of the Jordan when they first met. But Esau has journeyed northward, particularly westward, and has come back into the land and has come to this place to bury his father Isaac with Jacob. And in this burial, we notice yet another example of the literary linkage between the patriarchs. This is all important, I believe, because it indicates to us in the text, many things could be said about these individuals, but we notice how the text chooses to link the patriarchs together, often linking them together at places, and often linking them by similar phrases. As we look at the death of Abraham and compare it here with the announcement of the death of Isaac, we find a strong parallel emphasis here. There is, if you wanted to note back there in your Bible, otherwise just on the chart here in the overhead in front of you, but in chapter 25, there is, before chapter 25, there's a long section of history of Abraham's life. Then Abraham dies, the announcement is given. I'm sorry, I'm off of here. Let me, let me just turn around and look at this. The, at the, age, the age of death is given. I'm on to another topic already. You missed me there, didn't you? <laughs> I lose myself. But the age of death is given here uh, by bo- for both, 175, 180. Then the, the text says for both of them that they breathed, he breathed his last. He was gathered to his people. He was old and full of days. And in both cases, there are two sons that bury their father near Mamre. So again, this is not simply coincidental. I think it's providential, certainly, but even even in addition to that, there's the idea that this is how Moses chooses to give the story. He chooses to give it in this way, to link the two together. And there's so many places of linkage like this that indicate to us that the promise is passing through Abraham to Isaac. And the promise of blessing is passing through Isaac to Jacob. This is one of the ways, and in the life of Isaac, there's there's notable linkage as we looked at chapter 26, very clearly linking him by place names and experiences to Abraham, to whom God promised to give an offspring and the land of Canaan. So in this death, we notice, in this death notice, we notice this linkage. Let me just give you, well... Do I have it here? Where'd that map go? I can't have anybody help me because I don't have a clue really what I'm doing here. <laughs> Let me give you this one more time. And I missed a couple uh, names on here, but we're down here at Hebron now where Isaac dies. So Edom, Esau is over in this area. And I want to just give you a picture of this one more time because we're going to look at this region now as we look at Esau, as the text focuses upon him in chapter 36. But Isaac is buried here by Jacob and Esau, the two brothers who join together, and Esau will return here to Edom. And that it takes up the entire 36th chapter. A lengthy section of text and a genealogy. Once again, they're difficult for us to really find a whole lot of interest in them. These are the places we just pass over But there's an awful lot that's being said here, and I think it binds the whole section together as we look at Esau. Now, back to where I was. If you'll go back to chapter 25, there's a really interesting thing here. I think that you'll be able to clearly see. 
So as you're reading through your Bible, you're going through the book of Genesis, and you come to 36, and you say, why in the world is that there? Let's move on to 37. And I think we all do that to some degree. There's that tendency, and I don't know that there's any virtue in reading through every single name in this list. But as you're back in chapter 25 and compare it with chapter 35, you'll, you'll begin to see here, just right in front of you, what's going on in chapter 36. First of all, as we come to chapter 25, we know the preceding chapters, there's been a long history of Abraham, right? The life of Abraham has been recounted. Now how does that end? It ends, of course, here in chapter 25 with the announcement of Abraham's death. Following his death then, notice verse 12 of chapter 25. In verse 12 it says, this is the account of Abraham's son Ishmael. If you'll remember that phrase, this is the account, or these are the generations of, or sometimes this is the history of, all translate the same Hebrew phrase, toledoth. This phrase is used ten times throughout Genesis and is the primary marker of transition as you work your way through the book. So following Abraham's life and his death, there is a Toledoth section. An account of whom? Ishmael. We notice then, secondly, at verse 19, this is the account of Abraham's son Isaac. And now what follows? A long section of narrative dealing with Isaac and Jacob. Now as we come back to chapter 36, you'll see here that the very same thing happens again. The same pattern. What have we found in the, verse, in the chapters preceding chapter 36? We have the long history of Isaac and Jacob. How does that end? It ends in chapter 35 and verse 27... With Jacob or with Isaac dying, that's section 27 to 29. Isaac dies. And what is that followed by? Chapter 36 and verse 1, a Toledoth. This is the account of whom? Of Esau. Now jump ahead there just a little ways further to chapter 37. And what will we find in chapter 7, verse 30, or chapter 37, verse 2? What do we find there? This is the account of Jacob. Do you see the connection here? The patriarch's life is given, his death is announced, a genealogy of the son that is not chosen, of the son that is not the son of faith, the not the godly son, Ishmael, in the life of Abraham. We come to the death, uh, the life of Isaac, and primarily Jacob here, as his story is subsumed in Jacob's life, where does it end? With an account, a genealogy of Esau, the rejected son, followed by the account of the chosen son, Jacob. Now, isn't it interesting? We've come almost, really, in a sense, to the end of Jacob's life, but how does chapter 37, verse 2, how does it say, how does it put it? This is the account of Jacob, and then it goes on and gives the story of Joseph. So there's something that's happening here in chapter 36. What we are to see is that this is the line of the seed of the serpent, the offspring of the serpent. This is the people that are not the people of God. Now their life is recorded. Their history is recorded. God wants us to pay attention to Esau, but his account closes up here. He leaves behind a legacy. But it's a legacy that does not 
lead to a destiny of faith and blessing. There is blessing in Esau's life, but we find here that he is positioned in the place of the son who is not chosen to be the son of promise and the son of blessing. And that is because of the election and the choice of God and goes hand in glove with the sin of Esau. The two work together. The genealogy, there are really two that are in this section. This is very interesting too, and I don't want to get too lost in here. This will, I think, end at a place where we can really tie into all this. But if you'll just give me five minutes to explain hours and hours of research, it doesn't really do anybody any good, it wouldn't seem. But let me just say this real quickly. There's a couple of genealogies here, and the second is very interesting to us. Genealogy 1, you'll note there with your eye, verses 1 through 8. This is a very straightforward, simple account of Esau's wives and his sons. His wives have been referenced in chapter 26, 34, and 28, 9. And if you do catch this, they're not the same. I don't think that should trouble us at all. Commentators get all exercised about the fact that the lists of wives are not the same. Should not trouble us at all. There's no indication of how many wives Esau had. He may have had many wives. There's just three that are chosen here. And interestingly enough, they're all from Canaan. They're Canaanite wives. And these wives are selected out with their sons to show the line of Esau. Verse 2. Then, well, let me read verse 1 of 36. This is the account of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the women of Canaan, Adah, daughter of Ellen the Hittite, and Aholabama, daughter of Anna, and granddaughter of Zibion the Hivite, also Basemath, daughter of Ishmael, and sister of Nebaioth. Adah bore Eliphaz to Esau, Basemath bore Ruel, and Aholabama bore Jeosh, Jalam and Korah, these were the sons of Esau that were born to him in Canaan. Esau took his wives and sons and daughters and all the members of his household, as well as his livestock and all his other animals and all the goods he had acquired in Canaan, and he moved to a land some distance from his brother Jacob. Their possessions were too great for them to remain together. The land where they were staying could not support them both because of their livestock. So Esau, that is Edom, settled in the hill country of Seir. A couple of notes in this section, and we'll move through it very quickly. But we see here, and I'd like you to just note and emphasize in your mind this idea that Esau's wives come from Canaan. Just leave that settled there and remember that. He cuts himself off from the covenant of promise by identifying with the people that God has not chosen, that God has cursed, and whose sin will eventually become full to the point where God leads the Israelites to conquer this land of promise. But Esau is clearly identified in the text with these people. In chapters, verses 6 through 8, rather, we have a reference here to the days, I think, probably following Isaac's death. And you say, well, wait a minute, Edom's already in, or Esau's already in Edom. He's already in Seir. We don't know all of the history that comes here, but he probably, remember in the picture, you can see it's very easy for him to have moved west into Canaan, and perhaps he lived for some time in Canaan and some time at Seir and was something of a semi-nomadic hunter, Moving back and forth. We don't know, but the point is that as Jacob comes back here to Hebron, apparently the possessions of these two brothers are too great to sustain them. Now, why in the world does the text of Scripture write that in here? Why why does Moses record this? 
We can't miss that, can we? That, 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 there's a deja vu at this point, isn't there? This brings us back to whom? It brings us back to Abraham and Lot. Remember their problem? The land could not sustain them, and where does Lot move? He moves to the edge, if not over the edge, of the promised land. Where does Abraham stay? In the land of promise. We see the same thing happening here with Esau. He and Jacob cannot be sustained in the land, they don't believe, because of their vast number of possessions. What's that? The blessing of God, as he has promised to them. And so where does Esau go? He goes to Edom. He goes outside the land. So we have a brother here who finds his wives in the land and leaves the land. The exact opposite of God's promise, of God's intention. And that's what Jacob will do. will take his wives from outside the land and live in the land. That's not by accident here, and that's why I believe that it's recorded in the way that it is. This isn't just an itinerary for no purpose. It's saying that you need to see Esau as a man outside the promise of God. So we have a list here, just to summarize, of Esau's five sons by his three Canaanite wives. We come to the second genealogy at verse 9. Hang with me just a little bit longer. You see at verse 9, this heading, this is the account of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. And we say, well, we just heard that, didn't we? This is a second genealogy. It's a list that's been put together, it's been preserved somewhere, and it's been joined now to the first genealogy. Rather than combining the two, Whoever puts this in here just sets this in right behind the first genealogy. And this is a more extensive genealogy. In verses 10 through 19, we have the sons and chiefs of Esau's offspring. Probably for no other reason than just pure pride. I'm not going to read all these names. (laughs) This is no fun. Uh, to try to get these all right, but uh, in some ways I'd like to, but I'll just, I'll just pick out some of the um, highlights here. But verse 12, you'll notice there the name of Amalek. Amalek will play into later Israelite history as Amalek is one of the peoples that um, attacks unprovoked. They attack the sojourning Israelites as they're headed up north from Egypt to come into the promised land uh, centuries later. And also very interesting, but Haman, uh, you remember him from the book of Esther, is very likely an Amalekite. So here's one of the children of Esau, an uh, Amalek. And you just read your way through there, verses 10 down through verse 19, and you see the various names, probably down through verse 14, you see the various names of the sons of Esau through his wives. Then verse 15, we see this, these were the chiefs, among Esau's descendants. Now those two will be linked together, the chiefs and the sons, because go down to verse 19 and you, say, and you see there, these were the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these were their chiefs, their chieftains, their sheiks, their kings sometimes we find, though here we're probably not to understand the idea of kings. What's the whole point? The whole point is just sons and chiefs of Esau, here is his offspring. He leaves a legacy. There are people who are left behind as Esau passes this life. We come then to the section, second major section of this second genealogy, and that's at verse 20. Verses 20 through 30. See verse 19, you kind of catch that there. These were the sons of Esau. It's kind of a concluding statement called a colophon. This is the end of this section of the genealogy. Now we move to a new section, verse 20. What does verse 20 say? These were the sons of Seir, the Horite, who were living in the region. Who's 
Seer the Horite. These are the aboriginal people, the people who lived in Seir before Esau got there. We're probably to understand that Esau came in with his army and captured places here in the country, in the region of Seir, down on the, you're thinking here, southeast of the Dead Sea. Verse 24 is the only thing that I'd like to draw out of here. These are names of various chiefs of the people who were there before Esau. Another legacy that's left behind. People's names recorded. The places, some of the places recorded. And in verse 24, we find this very interesting note. Whenever a genealogy does this, there's something big for us to understand. Problem is, we're a little too far removed to understand it. But it, at any rate, it's here, verse 24, and we can ask God in heaven, I guess, what this means. No one really knows, but it says, This is the Anna who discovered the hot springs in the desert while he was grazing the donkeys of his father, Zibion. The problem here is that we don't know what the word hot springs really means. It can be translated a number of different ways. The Jews have traditionally translated mules, translated the word mules. And they credit Anna with crossbreeding horses and donkeys for the first time in human history. Who knows if they're right or if this translation is right. Most conservative scholars would take the phrase to mean hot springs. In some sense, this man distinguished himself as discovering something. So we, we talk about people that discovered the Mississippi or the Grand Canyon or something like that, and we record their name in history. This man's name is recorded in history, even though we don't really know what he discovered. But that it's not all that important, and there may be a message in that for us. It was a big deal in his day. It wouldn't make a bit of difference to anybody anymore. But his name, at least, is recorded here for his great discovery. Then we go to a third section, verses 31 to 39, and, that, and those are the kings of Edom. What's the difference? We had sons and chiefs, now we move to kings. There's a development here of power. Verse 31, these were the kings who reigned in Edom before any Israelite king reigned. Bela's son of Beor became king of Edom. His, his city was named Dinhabah. And you see a similar phrase as you go through. You'll notice there that the king reigns and the king dies and is succeeded by another king. These kings, verse 31, reign before any Israelite king reigned. Now that is an amazing phrase here because I don't see how we can understand this to be something that Moses wrote. It could be, I suppose, but the author here seems to understand that there were kings in Israel and he seems to know the relationship between the kings in Edom and the kings in Israel and he said that the kings in Edom come first. Now remember, Moses, he's, Israel's not even entered the land yet as a people, let alone any king. Saul is nowhere to be seen here. I mean, we have the whole period of the, the conquest, and then we have the judges, and then comes the first king, Saul. And this author understands that Saul came after the Edomite dynasty of kings. Actually, it wasn't a dynasty, but the, the succession of kings. So I would suggest here, I don't think we should have any trouble with this in our understanding of inspiration, but I would suggest here that the author of these five books, Moses, did not write this section. That this section was added to his text a long time later. 
Now that's not a problem to us if we understand how the Bible was put together. And do we believe that this section of Scripture is inspired of God? Yes, we do. That God oversees the inclusion of every word and every letter, every jot and tittle, as we have in the English, every piece of it is inspired by God, is intended by God, and He intended for this genealogy to be placed here. But we see the hand of the author. And I think at this point we see the hand of more than one author in the text. We believe it to be God's Word through and through. We come then, as we go down... Let me just one more note. I, I know this is a little bit uh, less than essential to us, but it's, it's going to come to conclusion here. Let me just say one more thing, and that's that this is a very interesting list of kings because there's no sense of uh, dynasty. There's no sense of a family. W what do you read as you go to First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles? You read... This king died and his son became king, and his son became king. We don't see that here. And it may indicate to us a very unique setting in that time and in that era of kings who were perhaps chosen by people. I doubt that because knowing world history, I doubt that's the case. But what they probably were were individuals very parallel to Israelites, to the Israelite judges. That is, they rose up not because of their lineage, but they rose up because of their charisma, of their military power and strength. And so we have here a sense of a people of great prowess, of great strength, of great power. And there are kings long before the Israelites are able to have any kings. So Esau leaves behind to us a legacy of worldly strength and power outside of the purposes of of God's electing grace. At verse 40, we read, Then these were the chiefs descended from Esau by name according to the clans and regions. This is a more geographically oriented list compared to the genealogically oriented list that comes before. But as you read genealogies, I would not say that you need to read every name by any means. But as you go through, and you're reading through, and as you're reading through, maybe reading through the Bible in a year or two, and you go through a genealogy, don't just pass it up. But look at the sections in it that aren't just names. Look at the unique phrases at where they start and where they end. And we have here before us now the close of the life of Esau. Esau is long gone in our day. Like a vapor, he's long vanished, conquered by time. But Esau has a legacy to this day, and it's here in the pages of Scripture, and it's a reminder to us. His days on earth are cemented on the timeline of history. Now follow me here as I try to bring some of this to close. I think this will make sense to us as we say, what do we make of all of this? Esau left behind a legacy of success and a legacy of strength. He was a vigorous man, and his people evidenced bold courage and conquering hearts. They were kings. They were mighty people. They controlled land. They had wealth. The lives of these people are recorded here in the pages of history according to their clans and their regions and their kings. They formed a great nation on earth. But they were not a great nation in God's sight. And that's what matters here 
That's what is essential as we look at the entire message of the book of Genesis. As it comes to close here with Esau's life, as Esau's life comes to close here, there is the reminder to us that this story, this history, this legacy does not register as important with God. It's important to show us the close, but these are not God's people. They were not a great nation in God's sight. Esau left behind a legacy of faithless sensuality. Is that fair? We may not know that if this is all that we had, but let's go to Hebrews chapter 12. And we begin to see how the New Testament takes these chapters and applies them to the life of people of faith on this side of the cross of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. In the context of faith, chapter 11, that great chapter of faith, a hall of fame almost it would be of faithful people. Here in chapter 12, having discussed the concept of discipline, we come to verse 14, and the author of Hebrews says this, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. Romans 9, very clearly, God chooses Jacob over Esau. The divine side. Here, the human side. Esau sins, and God rejects him because of his sin. Esau receives from God what he really wants to receive from God. He despises his birthright. He despises, in that sense, the promise of God, of the land, and of a people. He despises being the leader of faith in his family and taking forward from there the promises of God and living in this world as a sojourner who reaches for a city whose builder and maker is the Lord's, as we find here in the people of faith in Hebrews 11 and 12. Did you, rate, did you catch that phrase there, verse 14? In the context here of Esau, using Esau as an illustration, the author of Hebrews says to us, who are followers of Jesus Christ, he says this, and hear this, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. If I could put that together with what we've read in Genesis and taking from the context here of Hebrews 12, it makes no sense how many children you have. No difference, I should say. It makes no difference how many children you have. It makes no difference how many grandchildren you might have. It makes no difference how much money or influence or success you stockpile in this life. Without holiness, no one will see God. Although our lives are fleeting and soon pass from the memories of those we leave behind, we all leave a legacy And that legacy leads to a destiny 
Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. It doesn't say sinlessness. And it certainly doesn't say a stockpile of good works that we can show to God. What it says is holiness. That is distinctiveness. That is, in this context, to belong to the Lord by faith. This is Rachel's legacy. This is Isaac's legacy. This is Jacob's legacy. Like Esau, they too had children and grandchildren. Like Esau, they knew financial success. And eventually a king rose from their ranks with power to conquer Edom itself. King David. But what set Abraham and Isaac and Jacob apart from people such as Esau and Lamech and Cain was that these people had faith in God. They trusted His promise. They were His distinctive people. They worshipped Him. It is a mistake that chapter 37 and verse 1 is not included in chapter 36. It's a mistake. You see that in your text? What does it say back in Genesis 37? Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. That's a mistake because remember, the verse and chapter divisions are not inspired. They're, not, they're just there to help us. That's a mistake. What is not a mistake is that the genealogy of Esau ends with that comment. Where does Esau get his wives? From the offspring of the world. From the Canaanites. From the people who reject God. Where does he get his wives? From Canaan. Where does Jacob get his wives? Chapter 37 and verse 1. He lived in the land where his father had stayed. He, rather, that's where he lives. Where he gets his wives is Padan Aram. Where he lives is Canaan. So we go back to that point. Esau gets his wives from the world and he leaves the realm of God's blessing. Jacob gains his wives in God's will from outside the world in this understanding, as this we draw this analogy, and he brings them back and lives in the land of promise. Isaac and Jacob's legacy is not that they were uniquely good men because they were not. Their legacy is found in the fact that they trusted God and identified with His cause on earth. That is a great legacy to earn, and it leads to a great destiny. In Hebrews chapter 11, we have reference to Isaac in verse 20 and to Jacob in verse 21, the author of Hebrews very clearly sees them in contrast to Esau that we looked at in chapter 12 as people of faith. Verse 20 and verse 21, Isaac and Jacob. Now I'd like you just to go up as we close with this at Hebrews 11 to verse 13. In the context of the men of faith here listed, Jacob and Isaac, we read just prior to that reference, verse 13 of Hebrews 11, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, and they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. 
sojourners, pilgrims, people who don't belong here. Verse 14, people who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. What country is that? Mesopotamia, from where Abraham came. Instead, verse 16, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. What a blessed promise. Do you see what it says next? Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. There are times, there are days, when it's no question in my mind that my life, and my actions, my words, my thoughts, shame God. He must be ashamed of me as his child. But you know, it doesn't end with that as we relate to our Heavenly Father. Because all of us sin. But if we are people of God, we can know that God is not ashamed to be called our God. Because we walk in faith, living not for this world, but living for the one that is to come saying by our actions, our priorities, our attitudes, our thoughts, that God is, and He rewards those who diligently seek Him. God knows the days of your, day of your death, and He knows that it will be soon in the big picture. But what will you make of the days He gives you? Will you live for the heavenly city? Will you leave behind a legacy of faith? That's our great call, our great privilege, and someday that will be our great reward. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we come before you with thanks of heart.